This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. It was the start of another school day, and the students were waiting for their teachers to open the doors to their schoolhouse, but they never showed up. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called The Schoolhouse. The principal and teacher didn't arrive at school. Where were they? Just a note before starting. Apple for the Teacher does not name perpetrators out of respect to the victims. In the time that I've been doing my podcast, it's really been interesting to learn about how education and schools are different in other countries compared to where I live here in Australia, and it's been particularly interesting to delve into historical cases and visit an era so different to today. I just love looking back at old black and white photos of the olden day schoolhouses. And some years ago, I took my class to a historical village, which was popular with school groups, where we got the chance to go inside an old schoolhouse. There were those old wooden school desks, which had lids that opened upwards. And the kids were just so enthralled, and so was I. And they just couldn't believe how tiny the schoolroom was. So this episode today will take us back 100 years ago to a place called Palmer, which was situated in the US state of Ohio. The year was 1921. The small township of Palmer had a population of about 2,000 people and was mostly farmland. The Palmer High School consisted of two separate portable schoolhouses, which were situated across the road from one another. On one side of the road was the schoolhouse for the junior and senior students and the other schoolhouse housed the freshmen and sophomore students. The principal of the school was a lady named Louise Wolfe and it was fascinating for me to learn that she had been teaching for only two years before she became principal. In my experience, this is unheard of that someone can be promoted to principal so soon, but clearly a sign of a very different era. Louise was 38 years old but hadn't yet married. She shared a house with another woman nearby, which had been a common financial arrangement for unmarried women at the time, although there had been speculation that the two women had been a lesbian couple. She taught the junior and senior students. The other teacher was 24-year-old Mabel Foote, and she taught the freshman and sophomore students. Mabel lived with her family, and the teaching position she gained at the Palmer High School was her first, as she had only recently graduated. So on the morning of February the 17th, 1921, the students living in the small community of Palmer made their way to school. Some of the students travelled to school via a streetcar, which was a small, wooden, single-carriage train. It was also referred to as a dinky. In years gone by, they were pulled by horses, then became steam-powered, and then progressed to being electric. Each streetcar 
had to connect to wires above the trains. The streetcar that the students took dropped them off at the top of the road that their school was on, and then they had to walk about a mile or so to their schoolhouse. Their principal and teacher travelled to and from school the same way. So on this particular day, the students arrived and some assembled in the front of the school building that Principal Louise Wolfe taught, while others gathered across the road where their teacher Mabel Foote taught. Each morning, they would be greeted by their teachers who opened the doors to their schoolhouse. The teachers would come to school before the students and turn on the lights and heat so that the schoolroom was warmed up by the time the children arrived. But on this particular morning, they seemed to be waiting longer than usual. It appeared that the teachers were late in opening the buildings. While the children waited, there were also other students who were still making their way to school that morning. Siblings Edith and Edward Rittener, who were 16 and 14 years old, were walking to school with their six-year-old schoolmate, Ralph Pickard. It was a particularly cold morning as they made their way along the icy and muddy road. But it was then that they saw something on the ground which looked unusual. It appeared to be a bundle of material or clothing. And being curious children, they went closer to have a look, not knowing that their innocent eyes were about to fall upon a very grisly scene. Two women were laying on the ground motionless, and upon seeing the blood on their bodies and clothing, the children jumped back in shock and then bolted the rest of the way to school to raise the alarm. And that's when they saw the other students waiting outside the two school buildings, which still hadn't been opened by their teachers. They frantically recounted what they had seen to their friends and also to the only other adult that was there, a carpenter who had been working on the school building. He asked them to take him to the scene. Although the children didn't know who the women were, the carpenter recognised them immediately. He had been married to the principal's sister, and he knew instantly that it was his sister-in-law, Louise Wolfe, and the other woman was teacher Mabel Foote. Their heads and faces had been severely bludgeoned, and wooden fence posts found nearby appeared to be the weapon used to commit the deadly assault. It was beyond doubt that the women did not survive the attack. Young Edith and Edward were inconsolable when it became clear that what they had found was the battered bodies of their beloved teachers. After the police had been alerted, their surveillance of the crime scene concluded that the teachers had endured a prolonged attack, but it was also clear that they had fought for their lives right until the bitter end. The residents of the small community of Palmer were confronted with the horrific details when their local newspaper reported on the tragedy. The article which appeared in the newspaper called the Cleveland Plain Dealer reported on the murder as follows. Two school teachers from the Palmer High School, Miss Louise Wolfe, aged 38, and Miss Mabel Foote, aged 24, were found beaten to death early today 
on a desolate road not far from the school. Marks in the snow and a piece of blood-stained timber near the bodies indicated that the two women had put up a desperate fight for their lives before they were brutally murdered. Police dogs were put on the trail of the murderers after deputy sheriffs and detectives had been unable to find any clues. The bodies were on a path alongside Bean Road. Nearby was a heavy fence post spattered with blood, with which the heads of the two women were crushed. The two teachers left the school at 5pm and walked toward State Road to catch a streetcar there. There were only a few houses on Bean Road and none where the murder actually took place. The murderers are believed to have been hiding beside the fence. Miss Foote hit her assailant with her umbrella, breaking off the point. Both women used their fists, their knuckles being broken where they had been hit with clubs. Footprints in the snow indicate that they struggled back and forth along the roadway, crashing into the fence and knocking down posts. But the blows from the murderers' clubs soon subdued the two women. The umbrella used by Miss Foote was found beside her body. About 150 feet away was her wrist watch. It had stopped at 5.15. The body of Miss Wolfe lay face downward. Her pocketbook was found underneath her body. One of her rubbers was found beside her body. The other was still on her foot. A short distance from her was a black handbag which had been carried by Miss Foote. Its contents, including some garments, were scattered on the ground. Miss Foote's pocketbook also was on the ground. Footprints led from the scene of the murder to a real estate allotment nearby. There they were lost. It was apparent from the marks of the battle that when the murderer gripped one of the teachers, the other, arming herself with a small stick or stone, came to her assistance. When the murderer let go to protect himself from the other, the one who was freed immediately armed herself and went to her friend's assistance. Thus they struggled up the hill. Near the top, a sapling two inches in diameter marked advantage for the murderer. This club, with the dark hair of one of the teachers and the light hair of the other, still clinging to it, was bent in the middle, but not quite broken in two. Miss Foote, it is thought, regained consciousness following the assault. A trail of blood led from where the body first lay over toward the body of Miss Wolfe. Miss Foote carried with her a small satchel in which she had some night clothing, having spent the previous night with friends. This satchel had been opened and police think Miss Foote reached into it, taking out a nightgown and wiped the blood from her face. The loss of blood from her numerous wounds, however, caused her strength to weaken rapidly, and she probably soon lost consciousness again, dying later from the loss of blood and exposure. The schoolhouses had been located on a road called Bean Road. As there had been recent rain, it became impossible to travel the muddy road with the heavy ambulance 
and so the teachers' bodies had to be carried a quarter of a mile to where the ambulance waited. The farmers stepped forward with eager hands when volunteers were asked to help carry the bodies. Others fell in behind, and it was a silent, sad procession that moved slowly down the road to the waiting ambulance. While the brutal nature of the attack was clearly evident to the police, the motive was not clear. Neither of them had been sexually assaulted, and it seemed that robbery had not been the motive, as the teachers still wore their jewellery, which included a diamond ring still on Louise's finger, and their purses were also at the scene. The police believed that the teachers had been attacked while walking from school the day before on their way home. It was known that they typically stayed behind after school finished until about 5pm and then walked together to catch the 5.30 streetcar. The police were able to establish that a man who lived near the school said he saw the teachers leave that afternoon at about 5. It looked as though Mabel had intended to spend that night at her cousin's house, which she did quite often. So she would take her overnight bag with her to school and it was found at the crime scene. Her family knew she was going to her cousin's that night, which is why they weren't concerned when she didn't come home. When the tragic news filtered through the small community, every person that could descended on the scene to assist the police in searching the woods along the road. They were able to follow footsteps which eventually led to an abandoned chicken coop. It was thought the murderer may have hidden in the coop until it was safe to make a getaway, and they made an interesting find in the coop. Blood had been covered over with bricks and sticks, so was this the murderer's blood? Had the teachers been able to injure him, and had he then covered over the evidence? Not far from the coop was a water pump, which had still been working, so they speculated that he may have washed the blood off himself. As well as the police and the community members who searched the location, there was also one person who went above and beyond in an effort to locate the murderer. Mabel's own uncle, Charles Foote, figured that the murderer may return to the scene of the crime, and so he went to the site each night walking around with a flashlight, but his efforts were in vain. An independent investigation was then announced by the county prosecutor. He said, Everything must be done to catch the murderer. This is the most cold-blooded and carefully planned outrage that I have ever had called to my attention. The school teachers, beloved by their pupils and the parents of their pupils, have been brutally clubbed to death. The man who committed the crime is still at large and the community will not rest until he is prevented from again committing such a crime. Until this is done, the life of no woman, citizen of the county, is safe. The police came up with the following theories, which was published in the Cleveland Plain Dealer newspaper. The crime was committed by one man. Had there been two men, they would have succeeded in overcoming their victims before the battle had extended 
over a 600-foot stretch of hilly road. Had there been two men, both ladies probably would not have been found within six feet of each other. Police also point out that this type of murderer travels alone and not with a companion as a general thing. The murderer either lived or had lived in the neighbourhood or had visited it often enough to have made himself thoroughly familiar with the habits of the teachers in walking down Bean Road to the State Road car line every evening after school. Officials discredit any theories which would have the murderer just happen along the right time to meet the teachers at the loneliest spot on the highway. The murderer is a man probably showing very plainly the marks of his battle with the women. The footprints on the embankment, which overlooks the roadway and on which the women fought for their lives, shows plainly that the teachers put up a bitter struggle. There was no thought of one of them running away and saving herself while her friend was in the clutches of the fiend. As part of their investigation, the police visited farmhouses in the area, specifically looking for so-called half-wits. They also questioned any man seen to have scratches on their faces or hands and fingerprinted all the men in the community. Although there were some men who came under suspicion, they were ultimately released due to lack of evidence. But by far the most promising lead came from some students from the school. They said they had overheard the teachers talking, and Mabel had allegedly said that she had met a stranger along the same road the day before the murder. He had asked her where he could catch the streetcar. Miss Wolfe had asked Miss Foote, quote, What did you do with that man you met on the road yesterday? She replied, Oh, I got him to a car, meaning here, a streetcar. So the police speculated that the killer maybe had planned the murder during that encounter, but for some reason he carried out the murders the next day. However, much to their disappointment, this just turned out to be another empty lead. But then another possible lead presented itself when two coats were found hidden in a hay shed. They were spattered with mud, but there was also dark red spots on them, which may have been dried blood. They questioned the man who owned the farmhouse, and he stated that he had worn the coats when painting and working around his farm. But the police also made another interesting find. A children's storybook had also been found near the coats. The man's son explained that one of the teachers had given him the book to take home to read some three years earlier, but that he had forgotten to return it. The book also had red smears on it, but the police were satisfied with the explanation given by the farmer and his son, and the matter was no longer pursued. While the police continued their investigation into the murders, they were approached by a woman who provided them with a very interesting story. She claimed that she had previously solved other crimes through divine guidance and that she had seen the teacher's murderer in a vision. She also claimed to have spoken with teacher Mabel Foote. She stated, quote, Just as she was about to name her assailant, she disappeared. 
However, last night I had another vision. I saw a man on his knees before me begging forgiveness and confessing to the crime. So I can tell you, when I enter the woods today, I expect to find the murderer. He is in a weakened condition. He will crawl to me like a snake. He will lift up his hand and pray as he has never prayed before. That is my vision. However, the police dismissed the woman as nothing more than a crackpot. And it was then that a very surprising development occurred, which absolutely stunned the investigators. A man surrendered himself to police and confessed to the killings. The police took the man to the crime scene, where he proceeded to describe what had happened. He said he had approached the two women, but when one of them became frightened, he attacked her. And that's when the other woman hit him over the head with a club, and he then proceeded to attack both of them. Although the man provided this account, it wasn't very detailed, and the police did not place much credence in his story, believing him to be a so-called mental defective, which was the terminology used at that time. Even members of the man's own family characterised his story as fiction. They declared his only knowledge of the murders came from reading or hearing people discussing what happened, and so far as his family knew, he had not been missing on the day of the murders. They also said that a scar on his head, which he said was caused by the teacher's blow, was one which he had carried for several years. The confession of this man appeared in a local newspaper, the Portsmouth Daily Times, as follows. A mental defective in the custody of the Cleveland police declares that he murdered the two Palmer school teachers. It is practically certain that if this particular defective did not commit the crime, some man of his general type is responsible. Here we have a creature with the mental development of a four-year-old child. He can neither read nor write. He is almost wholly responsible. With such a man, the most bestial crime is a mere matter of course if his stunted brain turns his impulses in that direction. This particular defective, if his guilt be established, will be taken care of. But what of the thousands like him, men and women, whose presence at large in society constitutes a constant menace to public welfare? These Palmer teachers were sacrificed to public indifference. Had the problem of the mental defective been handled with reasonable effectiveness, the teachers would be alive today, and the man who confesses that he killed them, had he been born at all, would not have been permitted to run at large, endangering society with his perverted tendencies. A society which permits the unlimited propagation of defectives and then allows them unrestrained liberties invites just such tragedies as that written in blood beside the country road in Palmer. Every Ohioan knows the peril involved in this do-nothing policy towards feeble-mindedness. A large proportion of crime is committed by individuals underdeveloped mentally. Effective action must be taken 
or feeble-mindedness will pull down society. So the language used in this article is really interesting, but at that time, it had been the early days of eugenics, so it's not surprising that words such as defectives, feeble-minded, imbeciles, half-wits, and morons were commonly used. These people were always the first to be put under suspicions and accused of anything and everything. However, the police ultimately dismissed this man's confession. So the police had one man come forward and confess. So just imagine their reaction when yet another man came forward and confessed to the murders. He had had a lengthy criminal record, including having killed a shop owner with an axe. However, his family claimed that he was mentally unstable. He was ultimately removed from the lists of suspects as he apparently had a credible alibi. So his confession was deemed to be false as well. So we can see that the police theories and leads centred on the males in the community. However, they also put forward another theory that the murders may have been a homophobic attack, as it had been speculated that Principal Louise Wolfe had been in a lesbian relationship with the woman that she shared a house with. So they developed a love triangle theory that Louise's lesbian lover may have been jealous of Mabel, as the two teachers spent a lot of time together. If this theory was true, police believed she had hired a hitman to kill the teachers, as they were adamant the brutality of the crime could only have been committed by a man. But they also put forward another possible theory, that because Mabel was very young and attractive, she may have rebuffed the advances of a certain male suitor, and when it became known to him via rumour that Mabel may have been in a relationship with Louise, he perhaps decided that he had been betrayed or even humiliated by the fact that she was a lesbian, and therefore he decided to murder both of them. But despite the confessions and the many leads they pursued, the murder of the teachers has remained a cold case to this very day, but is still well known due to its documentation in the local historical records. So much so that even the current police lieutenant at the Palmer Police Department has weighed in on the mystery. He believes that if the crime had occurred today, the police would have been able to solve it. He said, Yeah, absolutely. I think with all the cameras, there's the ring doorbell cameras, the surveillance cameras, the license plate readers. There's just so many different things that are available today that weren't available 100 years ago. I understand that there was also some sort of skin underneath the fingernails of one of the victims. Obviously, that would have been sent off for analysis. And what today is so simple just wasn't around a hundred years ago. But he does admit that the motive for the crime is quite baffling. Well, just because it leaves you wondering why would they do it, what was the motive behind it? Because typically it could be a robbery gone wrong, where they were trying to steal their purses, 
get some money or where they were trying to, you know, thereafter sexual gratification. And so it just leaves you wondering, why would they just kill two people to kill two people? He also believes that the case will never be solved as all of the case files are nowhere to be found. All the evidence is gone. I mean, we can't even pull police reports on it. The facts that we have are just from old newspaper articles. We don't have anything here such as the murder weapon used. They could have gotten DNA trace evidence off of that. We don't have the murder weapon. We don't have any photos from the crime scene. We don't have police reports. There's so many things that we don't have. Plus, the likelihood of anybody being alive is pretty non-existent because you figured out that they'd have to be at least 120 years old at this point. But what he said about there being no photos from the crime scene, well, actually, that's not true. They have photos of the two women's bodies, which can easily be found online. And this is the one thing that I find really distressing about doing my podcast, searching for photos about the cases and finding crime scene photos of the victims. I really, really wish that there was a law that keeps this material out of the public arena. And there also is a photo of those two children who found the teachers' bodies. So if you look up this story, you'll be able to find their pictures as well. Just really sad to look at these two children. I just cannot imagine what they must have gone through finding the bodies of their two teachers. So that's the end of the very, very sad story of these two school teachers. And the other interesting thing was, as I normally do, I always look for the victims on the Find a Grave website, but I was only able to find Mabel, but not Principal Louise Wolfe. So if you'd like to leave Mabel a message, her full name is Mabel Estelle Foote. Now, the next episode will be an update episode, so if you haven't already, you might like to listen to these episodes before the next episode comes out. Episode 66, Brazilian Beauty, and Episode 80, Scout's Honour. And to finish this episode, I will leave you with this quote, Justice doesn't mean punishing the guilty. It also means we should never give up seeking the truth. Bye for now, and remember to be a good apple.